All right, my friends, welcome back to the Kokoro Movement Podcast. On this episode, we have Guido Van Rysigen. This guy is amazing. He's just got a wealth of knowledge, and he's a sleeper in the strength and conditioning world, so pay attention to this guy's name because he's coming in hot. I was really excited to have this conversation, and he did not disappoint, so we're just going to jump right into it. Without further ado, Guido Van Rysigen. San Diego and actually do a workshop in Okay, yeah, that's really interesting. So, you know, I've always wanted to talk to you because uh, you have a movement optimization workshop right now, right? Uh, I have two movement optimization workshops. Yeah, one is the what I call the upper quarter. The other one's called the lower quarter. Okay. So I've been to their place uh, with the uh, lower quarter. Okay. Workshop. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a lot to unpack here. So let's, uh, first of all, let's give our listeners a good, like a just quick and dirty rundown of who you are and where you come from and what you do. Okay. Um, my name is uh, Guido Van Rysigem. I'm an athletic trainer, also a strength coach. And um, if I kind of get to the point we're at now, uh, for the last couple of years, I've been working a lot in, um, in Asia. Uh, predominantly in China. I've set up a private uh, school there, university level program. It's a four-year program for their future sports medicine and exercise science specialists. On top of that, I do quite a bit of workshops there as well, different locations all over China. Um, also uh, do uh, workshops in uh, Tokyo and actually have uh, started my uh, Japan KI uh, system over there. So my company name is called Safe Recovery, but one of the products is called Kinetic Integrations, which is basically um, that movement optimization model that I've created over the years. Okay, and how long have you been doing this? Uh, workshops all over the world for oh, quite a few years, probably about 20 years or so. Okay. Uh, the Academy in uh, China for the last two years. Okay. Actually, I'm uh, going back there in October is also December to finish the school year. And then we've got two more years left. We'll we then focus on uh, bridging the gap uh, for a whole year. So basically, it's injury prevention, evaluation, treatment, rehabilitation, return to full activity. And then the last year, uh, we'll actually have some guest per, uh, lecturer come over uh, to present on perform signs of performance. So some of these uh, students in the academy want to be either A, strength coaches, or want to be uh, what they call over there therapists. Yeah, uh, and then there's a, a stack of them as well that are personal trainers and doing somewhat of a little bit of performance training at this moment. Okay, that's really interesting. Yeah, before that, I was at Oregon State University. I was there for 16 years. Uh, I was an athletic trainer over there. Uh, before that, I was 12 years in uh, in uh, in baseball, professional baseball here in the U.S. 
started with the Kansas City Royals when I was still a grad student, uh, and then moved up to the uh, Texas Rangers and uh, finished my career with the Baltimore Orioles as their medical coordinator. Before that, I was a grad student at the University of Oregon. I got two master's degrees over there, one in athletic training and the other one in sports medicine. before that, I was in Belgium. That's where I'm from originally. Uh, I was a so-called athletic trainer for a local baseball team. I was also a strength coach uh, for about 10 years and also at our national team while actually working full-time as a registered nurse in a hospital in our emergency room department. Before that, I was in the military and I was a, uh, a medic. Uh, I got interested in these fields because actually I was born as a premature baby and almost didn't make it. I was actually in an incubator for about two months. And our, our, our uh, family, sorry, our pediatrician actually said to, to my parents, you know, this kid needs to do sports and he'll, he's never going to develop. And so from a very young age on, I got involved in sports and activities. And, uh, and at some point while I was working with our Belgian national team, I saw the U.S. team uh, in Antwerp, Belgium, where I'm from originally. Uh, McGuire was on the team, and a lot of those guys made it to the big leagues. And uh, I saw three individuals doing things that I wanted to do, you know, taping ankles and so forth, taking care of their injuries and performance. And the moment I saw them doing that, I said, that's what I want to do in my life. And so uh, I got lucky. I got introduced to the Seattle Mariners, spent several days there at the Kingdom in those days, with Rick Griffin, who was then the head athletic trainer. He was a U of O grad and introduced me to the University of Oregon. And from there on out, this is where we are. Man. Uh, so right now in my career, I just celebrated my 60th birthday. Um, I still do patient care, but, uh, you know, through my own business, not at Oregon State anymore. Uh, take care of predominantly elite athletes on a world level, some Australians, Chinese, etc. cetera. Uh, and then uh, my, my, my joy in life right now is, to mentor young professionals and teaching them to kind of, you know, where I, where I left off. And just like I say, I always, you know, it doesn't matter what you do in life. It's what you leave behind. Right. And that's kind of my last, my last quest now before I close my eyes and guys like you take over. Right on. It's a, <laughs> that's a heck of a life you had there, sir. That's really, so do you ever, so is this all stuff that you kind of worked for? Is it, did it all just kind of find, fall into your lap? Because that's one thing that I'm really interesting is how people kind of progress. You know what I mean? So there's like some people that I know that just like they're, they're just going to work. Like so I'm in uh, northern Arizona, so they'll just be the athletic trainer for northern Arizona University until they retire, and then that's it. But you just were – it seems like you just have – such a clear vision of what you're doing. So do you just work incessantly to do that or, or what's your mindset around that? Well, actually I got a quote, Nick Winkleman, who was one of my students at Oregon State University on a podcast that just came out today. You know, he, he basically said something like this, to be successful in your career, you need to visualize where you want to be next. Yeah. That's, that's what I taught him. And that's what I taught the students that I mentored uh, at Oregon State and in other places where I was guest lecturing. And that's, that's kind of been my, uh, kind of my plan, uh, without really reading about it, whatever it was just, I think you need to prepare for the next step. Right. On top of that, you always need a plan B. Right. 
if somebody pulls the rug from your feet, you know, you don't fall too deep. Uh, so I've always been involved in multiple things, not only having one job, but actually doing, you know, multiple other things like presenting and doing research and so forth. Right. So when you start, especially for the younger listeners here, I think it's important. Uh, too many young people in general are focusing on things that are, I think, are completely irrelevant. And what I mean by that is this. A lot of them focus about uh, on things like, I want to make money. Well, that, that's never been on my mind, you know. Yeah. Um, my, my advice is, you know, write down your dream job, and it doesn't matter how ridiculous it is. Like, like when I was in Belgium and I said, I'm going to go to, over to the U.S. and I'm going to work in professional baseball. People around me thought I was absolutely crazy. Right. But for, for three years before I left the University of Oregon, I was already reading articles on baseball injuries. I was corresponding in those days letters. Yeah. <laughs> there was no email. Uh, to Dr. Job, you know, famous physical therapist here, in the universe, here at the uh, USA or uh, surgeons. And they thought it was amazing that some guy from Belgium wanted to know about you know, uh, rehabilitation and baseball injuries and so forth. Then I actually, with the limited access to baseball information in Belgium at, at that moment, you know, we're talking way back in the, you know, the, the, the 80s, I started basically analyzing their mechanics and comparing them to javelin throwing, and soccer agility running and so forth. So uh, Belgium, of course, you know, baseball is as good as non-existent. Uh, but you can compare with other sports and so, right. and you know, analyzing that, uh, and it, it, and maybe it's unique to myself, but it, it, my job became my hobby and it's still that way. I mean, uh, people that know me uh, personally, they know that I say things like I read at least two hours a day and, and that's not a joke. Yeah. You know, I get up at five, five thirty in the morning and cause I'm more productive in the morning yeah. and, and I read all kinds of stuff, uh, I can get hooked on history. You know, my students know this. I always say, if you don't know the past, you can't predict your future. Right. Uh, you know, cultural diversity, you know, things like, is it, is it really necessary that we go through a crawling phrase to stand up as some uh, organizations claim? Well, yeah. that's not necessarily true. Uh, travel, uh, my wife and I travel extensively. Uh, we actually last year came back from Kyrgyzstan. We've climbed a mountain in Nepal. Uh, uh, we've been in Namibia and so forth, and I like the different cultural perspectives. So focus on your ultimate goal. It doesn't matter how ridiculous it is. And then these days, it's easy. You just go online and you find people that already have a job yeah. that is your dream job. Right. And you try to identify, you know, what kind of degrees do these people have? What kind of certifications? And you're going to see that, at least in my field, that uh, they have a lot of things in common. Yeah. And so they might go to maybe three or four or five at most different universities. They kind of gather together. They, they are involved in, in similar organizations. They have similar degrees with specialties and whatever. And then I always say, you know, you need to match that up. Yep. You know, you just need to get as close as possible to having what these people already have. Uh, because if you have that interview, and that might only happen once in your life, you gotta be at your best point. I mean, it's like an athlete can train for years to go to one Olympics. This is your Olympics. 
this is your only shot and stand in front of the world and see what you're all about. And if you can match up with the other ones that, that have equal talent and are equally prepared as you are. Yeah. So that's still in my life right now. Uh, once I was at Oregon State University, my dream job then, my new dream job then, was I wanted to become like Leon Chato. It's an individual not a lot of people know about, but he was an osteopath. Uh, he passed away about a year and a half ago uh, for the royal family in, in, in UK. And then he started doing workshops and lectures and wrote several books. And, and my wife knows it vividly about 10, 15 years ago. I already started saying that. That's my next goal is I want to be like this guy because that would be freaking awesome. Yeah. And so, you know, even at my age, you still need goals and you still need, you know, to look at the future. What's the next 15 years going to bring? Well, right now for me, that's going to be expanding my academy model in, in other countries, uh, including Japan, like I already said. I do a lot of work in South Korea uh, and maybe here in the U.S. And, and looking for partners, basically businesses, that are interested to support that or, or that I can support what they're currently doing. And that's the, the last quest in my life is leave something behind. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. So that's uh, one of my favorite quotes is uh, from Dr. Kelly Sturette, where he said, the language of human movement is all the same. And so it was really interesting that you were finding comparisons fairly early on between like baseball and javelin throwing, because it's all the same thing. We just have different aims and different goals in each sport, right? So you know, teaching the, the hip drive to throw a baseball is the same thing as like if you're teaching martial arts to throw the hip drive to throw a punch. It's the same concept. Absolutely. And so if you just figure out, so we tend to make things so complicated, but it's just the same thing. And, and if you start acting like that and then looking at it that way, then you can start helping a lot of people because I'm a, I'm a bigger guy. So I have more of a proclivity towards weightlifting than I do running, but I know what shapes you're supposed to be in when you're running. And I know what looks weird and what doesn't, you know, so then I can help runners run better, even yep. if it's not proficient at that thing. Um, and then, you know, that's another interesting thing too. And then I'll bring up another quote uh, from, um, I call him one of my power animals because if I'm having a hard time, I just listen to his audio book. It's uh, David Goggins. And he says, there is no finish line, you know? So that's where people are like, well, how long do I eat healthy for? Well, forever, you know, yep. like how long do I have goals for until you die? Like that's just how it works. And so, you know, I talk to my wife about this all the time. Um, you know, I want to retire into teaching cause I can teach until I die. Like it's yep. not, you know, as long as I'm cognitively with it, I'm going to be able to teach stuff and I'm constantly learning. And, you know, then to bring up another point, like you had to write letters to people. Like I have it so easy nowadays, you know, like I just, I get on Instagram and shoot somebody a message. Hey, do you want to be on my podcast? Because I'm interested in what you have to say, or I just shoot them an email or we have a mutual friend like, um, like, uh, Seb Gonzalez that hooks us up. And it's just, it's, or even just remember, I remember when my dad started uh, as a massage therapist, he had to, you know, rent credit card machines for like 350 bucks a month. And now you just get a square and it's so easy. Everything's so easy. It's weird. And people still complain about it. It's <laughs> driving me crazy. Yeah. When I wrote the, the first letter, 
I asked, uh, you know, in the, in the post office, how long it would take to arrive in LA. And he said about 28 days. Yeah. So imagine you have to wait on a response on Instagram for 28 days. Then you have to write back. Right. You know, and he would send me like articles printed out. Of course, there was no PDF and all that stuff. So right. I got a big fat envelope in the mail. That's like three, four, five months later. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and what I really like what you just said, there's nothing new. Right. Even in performance and in, in therapy, you know, I'm an athletic trainer as well. I, I think people try to reinvent things. Yeah. And they talk about, they, they, they give it a new name or something. Uh, and, and in reality, it's, it's, you know, in performance training, it's loading and unloading. I mean, it's for me, the older you get, the more I simplify things. Right. In performance and in therapy, there's only one thing that's new and that's vibration. Right. You know, the exposure to, uh, you know, more than two G forces is something we cannot easily duplicate unless you put somebody in a fighter, fighter plane. <laughs> right. Besides yeah. that, the tools have changed. Um, and, and the only thing that I think has really changed is the, the knowledge. Right. We, we've, we learn more. And because of the internet and so forth, we have access to gigantic amount of information on a 24-7 basis. So we've gotten smarter, uh, and we're still getting more and more smart, you know, especially yeah. pertaining to topics like, you know, proprioception, um, uh, movement variability, which is one of my specialties, yeah. uh, sensory motor training, uh, neuromuscular control, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, over the years, I've, be I've, I've become more of a neuro guy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the motor control, motor learning uh, sciences are absolutely fascinating to me uh, versus the more biomechanical approach guide mechanics. Even in treatment, I mean, you know, of course, there's things like ultrasound and muscle stim that got invented in whatever time period. But in reality, it's just a tool to obtain the same exact goal. And I think we sometimes forget that. And, and you know, people thinking like the Turkish getup is, is the greatest thing since mustard. It's just a tool. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's it. And then what are we trying to obtain right. with that tool, right? Uh, what I also see being murky, and it, 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 I think it's dangerous, is that people are starting to use the same language uh, around fitness slash personal training and performance training as also therapy. So we're seeing a lot of what I think is an overlap between those two areas. But in reality, you know, if I'm rehabbing a top athlete, that's a totally different ball of wax. If I would rehab, you know, let's say an 85-year-old lady, you know, with the same surgery or the same injury. Right. The, the goal, the end goal is completely different. Yep. Uh, I don't need to worry about things like, you know, I got to make your rotator cuff stronger. Are you kidding me? I mean, this guy's a baseball player. He has no weak rotator cuff. Yeah. Now, upon testing, you might see some weakness, but with a small manual intervention, you often, then after you retest them, you see they got a so-called five out of five strength. So yeah. we're, it drives me crazy sometimes where I see people using inappropriate exercises or individuals that don't, that are way beyond the phase of, of using something like a, you know, a mini band or something like that. Right. Uh, so as we get more smart, as we get more exposed to things, it, I think it also, you know, comes at a cost. Yeah. I think there is less academic 
acad academic knowledge that's being shared and more the, the cute little YouTube video uh, with whoever. And, and I hope that my contributions uh, to topics like proprioception and so forth, basing it on uh, scientific evidence can help um, young and not so young professionals to actually uh, think a little bit deeper on when should you apply a balance exercise and so forth. Right. And so, man, yeah, you, you, you go on these just wonderful rants and then I'm just like having to go back and figure out what I need to unpack and what I don't. So uh, what I, what I enjoy the most about a lot of these uh, education courses that I've gone to is how everybody packages their ideas to what's the most effective for them. And then what you do as a practitioner is figure out how to integrate it in your practice to make it more beneficial for you. And then, so going on to, you know, the, the trainer coach therapist thing. So I started out as a massage therapist and started getting into more rehabilitative um, exercises and then more into, you know, the strength side of things. And it's really, um, I've really figured out how to dial that in for myself and, you know, going, getting people off the table and getting them moving better because, you know, people don't feel pain when they're lying on the table. That's just where we address it. And so as soon as their feet hit the ground, then it could change or it could get better, but we don't know. But then you have to solidify it with movement because any kind of manual therapy technique that we do is, is providing a temporary window of safety to where the joint loosens up a little bit or it stabilizes a little bit or that neurological muscle dysfunction goes away, but we have to solidify that with movement. And so um, I have uh, just recently come out of the CrossFit space and because of everything that I've learned, it just wasn't working for me because like you said, they can't explain the why behind what they're doing. So you have to tell me why, and it has to be a clear and articulate answer as to why this person who is 20 years old is doing a bunch of squats and this same person who is 50 or 60 years old is doing the same workout as that person because it could be largely inappropriate. You know, so if you can explain to me why they're doing that, then I'm all behind it. But if, it, there's, if there's no reason, then that's where I start to question what you're doing and if it's even going to be effective or not. You know, so... Um, like the, what I started calling like the squat with the hip below parallel is a competition standard because it's easy to measure. Right. And so if a judge is watching you squat and your hip goes below parallel every time, that's a good rep. And now I do believe everybody should be squatting, but everybody should be squatting to what they're capable of squatting at the time. That makes sense. So like, you know, like my mom was squatting to a uh, 20 inch box for eight months. And then I got her a little bit lower once she got a little bit stronger and then, you know, had to counterbalance the weight out in front. And now she's squatting pretty much body weight, which is a huge improvement from like two years ago when she started training with me. And so there's, there's all these reasons behind these things and you need to be able to clearly identify what they are. Yeah. What is the goal and what are the limitations? Right. Start with that. I think that's, that that would be a first good step, right? What right. Why, why does your mom want to squat? Right. Why does she need to squat? Right. And so, what are her limitations? 
Right. And so it could be as simple as, you know, she wants to have more ease getting out of her truck or, you know, getting off the couch or, you know, so I think that it's a really important movement, but I think it's overemphasized in the uh, strength and conditioning world. Cause like we're saying, it's just a tool, right? And so if, you know, 100% of running and 80% of walking is on one leg, then why are we doing a bilateral movement to train these people? You know, it should be, I believe that it should be part of their work, but it shouldn't be the only work that they're doing. I like the way you think about that. Thank you, sir. And so then that can bring us to your movement optimization. So upper and lower quarter. So let's talk about that a little bit. Well, about, um, let me think back now. I think about 12 years ago, um, I, I wrote a book called Kinetic Integrations. And that was basically kind of a relatively short synopsis on kind of my philosophy and, and science-based methodology to take care of people with an injury. So over the years, I've started going away more and more and more from the, let's call the more traditional rehabilitation approach. Like, you know, so many weeks post-surgery, you can only do these exercises. Uh, so many reps, so many sets and so forth. Uh, especially when I worked with elite athletes, these things didn't make any sense whatsoever. Uh, and so started questioning my, my, what I would call my traditional training, my, my, my college education. Uh, on top of all that, uh, being a reader of other people's materials, uh, I started to compact a variety of uh, what I call exercise models like um, neutral joint by Punjabi, uh, Yamba approach, McKenzie approach, and so forth. There's plenty more of them. And how I saw by applying these, uh, these models with my patients and also my performers, that they were actually getting better a lot faster. Simultaneously, I delved into the literature on learning. I mean, you and I, we give an exercise to somebody we need to know what's the most effective way for them to learn. Should we explain it to them? Should we demonstrate it? Should we uh, let them just do it uh, and then correct them? What's the most optimal strategy around that? Which in my book I call the sequential learning tactics. So it's basically a sequential way of what I think is a very ideal way of teaching an exercise, either a therapeutic exercise or a performance exercise. Uh, that, you know, basically became uh, two ebooks. Uh, I've been struggling the last couple of years to update it, but I think it's still a very good read. It has obviously limitations, meaning size. I have to cut out a lot of stuff. Uh, so over the last couple of years, being exposed to, uh, things like the dynamic systems theory. So delving deeper into motor control and in motor learning strategies and sciences, and getting interested in the concept of movement variability, I ran into the concept of dynamic systems. And within the dynamic systems theory, there is something really interesting that, I, that is called the attractor state. And in, in simple words, it basically means that when we get exposed to a certain environment, if we need to perform a specific task, 
and or if we have body limitations or accelerations, as I call it, you put those three things together, there's an endpoint, which is movement, that is, and the outcome of that movement is based on those three attractor states. Now, it changes over time. So what I mean as an example with your mom for, you know, her first rep is not going to look the same as her 10th rep. Right. So there is somewhat of a, let's call it a movement optimization, right? Right. Especially if we're not 20-year-old chickens anymore, we're going to need a couple of reps to warm up. Right. It's that repetition after repetition, that movement pattern changes. Yeah. One of the reasons I got into that was after uh, Greg Cook and his functional movement screen became incredibly popular, uh, a lot of young professionals at the university and people around me, they started saying things like, you know, if you can't squat this way or you can't do that this way, then you're all messed up. And then you need to do this and X, Y, and Z and uh, mobilize and foam roll, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And working with my athletes and my patients, I consistently saw that that was not necessarily the case. Uh, and then a simple example is you watch a um, power lifter squat under a heavy load and you watch an Olympic weightlifter squat and both are using competition style and you're going to see a distinctive difference. So I saw a lot of young professionals going either towards the Olympic style or the powerlifting style. And then if you are not doing it exactly that way, then you're all messed up. You got to get your hip mobilized, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I'm not saying there are cases that that's not needed, but there is a fact that there is a variety. And that variety can be because your mom has a hip replacement, right? right? A, a, a tractor state based on a limitation within the body. Or it might be because you uh, tell them to squat a specific way. Or you change the environment by letting them squat with the bar up front or in the back. Or uh, overhead squat. Or a plate over their head. You're going to see an immediate change. So based then on this dynamic systems theory model, changing the environment, you see a, a movement change immediately. Yeah. Even without you explaining anything, you just say, hold the bar over your head now. And now slowly squat and see how that, you know, how that changes. So for the last couple of years, my kinetic integrations called KI methodology has now been influenced extensively by the dynamic systems theory and this attractive state model and the sciences around uh, movement variability, how that uh, is affected by injury, by inactivity, uh, as also by redundant performances. Right. I'm constantly rotating in one direction, for example, you're going to see changes. And often then my strategy, if I work with elite tennis players or golfers or uh, baseball pitchers and other throwers and other rotational athletes, is to actually make a move in the opposite direction under the load. Another example is Chris Duffin, as you probably know, you know, one of the most elite power lifters. Uh, when uh, him and I were at EXOS uh, presenting uh, with Craig Liebenson and other uh, presenters, you know, he's, com he's complaining of back tightness, stiffness, and discomfort lifting. Well, by actually just giving him a modified sit-up, immediately that stiffness in his low back disappeared. So by using this attractor state model appropriately and understanding it appropriately, you can make drastic changes in people's pain level and even performance level. Right. Yeah, that's a, 
the rotational athletes are really interesting. And, um, you know, like I said, coming from the CrossFit space, there's no rotation whatsoever. And so they spend a lot of their time in that sagittal plane of motion. And that's where a lot of their pain comes from is because they don't have any variability at all. And so, you know, the way that I look at uh, movement variability is, is as far as like injury mitigation is it gives you the more solutions you give your brain to a movement than the more solutions it has when you need it. Yeah, the brain figures it out. I think right. we're making it way too complicated. Right. I think also we need to learn to shut up. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Limit our cueing. Right. And allow the repetition to uh, come up with the most uh, you know, optimal strategy. And then only intervene if after several repetitions there's still pain or there's performance uh, limitations. Right. Um, and, and, you know, coming back to Nick Winkleman, he did a phenomenal job getting his PhD in queuing. And that last podcast uh, summarized it really nicely. Uh, again, the queuing is part of, you know, changing a task, in my opinion. It's all part of that attractor state and dynamic systems model. Uh, so it, it goes very deep. It's just not about, you know, do this for three sets of 15 repetitions. But we're trying to influence the brain and allowing it to self-emerge movement. Right. Although that is challenging for a lot of people to think about it that way, when I, but when I give us a couple of demonstrations and then go a little bit into the literature, it makes total sense. And so I had a lot of fun um, about six, seven months ago uh, with Seb in San Diego and uh, uh, Benjamin uh, Ramos uh, to deliver them actually uh, my movement optimization model. And that's why I'm looking forward to go back in a couple of weeks from now on uh, my proprioception uh, workshop. Yeah. And it's, it's so, um, you know, then that kind of brings me back to what you were saying about crawling, right? So one of the first courses I went to was the DNS course, and they're really into that. Um, and I think that that's an optimal way to get people to organize their spine and organize their core and get the, get everything figured out because it's a it's a natural movement for us to do. But, you know, I have a, a kid right now. He's uh, 14 years old. He's going to try out for the wrestling team. and I'm having him prepare for that. And, you know, wrestling is, you know, I come from uh, jujitsu. Like you're not going to be in an optimal position to brace and organize your spine in order to generate force. And so if he's crawling weird and wonky while I'm having him push this medicine ball down the, or down the length of the gym, then that's okay because he needs to figure out the movement variability that's going to be associated with wrestling. Because you can't just stop the match and be like, hold up, I need to organize myself, I need to brace <laughs> my core before I push you off me. That's not how that works. Because you're, you know, especially in wrestling, they're trying to take each other's heads off. So, you know, like, it, like you said, it, it pertains to the person and you have to have your why and what you're doing. You know, so then I have another person who has hip pain while she's running, but then she doesn't have any rotational strength and stability in her upper body. And so then once you start to get her crawling, then she starts to understand, oh, I'm not using my body to its full potential as I'm running. I'm just using the lower part of the body to generate most of the force. And that's not optimal. You know what I mean? So then for her, it's more appropriate to do the crawling pattern so that she can understand that rotation or anti-rotational uh, part of that uh, part of that system. 
Yeah, I'm not saying DNS is, is bad, uh, right. you know, uh, whatsoever. It's, but for me, it's just another system. Um, right. and, and actually, I think yesterday I posted something on Facebook, an article about, you know, so many populations all over the planet where children never crawl. Right. And, and my wife, as we traveled, uh, even in the early 80s to Morocco, and spent time with the Berbers and the Tuareg um, uh, nomadic tribes, in the Sahara area and sub-Sahara area. And then later on to Myanmar and Nepal, et cetera. There's plenty of kids that, that don't crawl or crawl or crawl very limited amount of time. They're right. doing absolutely fine. It right. actually blows me away when I go to countries like that. You know, I always ask questions, things like, you know, uh, have you ever experienced back pain? These farmers that live in the mountains in Myanmar, close to the border of China, uh, one of the ladies was 83 years old, was making a carpet, and uh, she didn't even know what back pain was. Right. And I think we sometimes uh, forget the cultural perspective within our systems, uh, and, and, and that often can get us astray. Right. I don't think we need to crawl before we stand. Right. Many populations all over the planet where the ground is dirty or actually dangerous, snakes, rats, scorpions, where children are being carried by their mother or siblings for, for, for a long time, even when they're three years old and even older than that. And where uh, they sit uh, for a short period of time, get carried again, uh, lay on their side uh, and get carried again. And where their walking pattern is not disturbed. And actually, in my opinion, those indigenous populations are actually, their movement patterns are way superior than ours. Right. Uh, in, in many ways. Uh, seeing a 45 kilo uh, porter in Nepal carrying a load of 80 kilos up a mountain. Yeah. Uh, and, and not complaining and, you know, when I ask him if they have pain or discomfort, they don't even know what the hell you're talking about. So I think in our modern societies, because of sitting in chairs and so forth, uh, that might be the, the limiting factor more than anything else. So uh, the same thing in China. So many of my Chinese students are relatively in our Caucasian norms uh, hypermobile. Yeah. So I, I, you know, they need to stop copying our Western model. That right. includes warm up. That includes foam rolling. That includes stretching. These people yeah. don't need more mobility. They need more stability. Right. Uh, more strength. Yeah. Exactly. They that's, need to be more stable. And that's, uh, a, that's yeah, that's really interesting because you're, you basically, what you're saying is these indigenous peoples respond to their environment. And yeah. so you're, and their demands. right. And so it's the, it's the set principle, right? Specific adaptation to impose yeah. demand. So when, in over here in America, we need to create opportunities for us to exercise because we're largely sedentary. Right. Whereas they're just like, oh, I got to carry this 80 kilo bag up this mountain. That's just what I'm doing. They yeah. don't have to think about it. They just are like, well, I got to get this from here to there. And this is the only way I had to do it. Is there a job? Right. And so for we were at uh, to a mountain called Manaslu, which is the eighth tallest mountain in the world that we climbed. They that's the transportation. Right. At high altitude, it's going to be still people, sometimes yaks. Yeah. Low altitude is going to be donkeys right. uh, but mostly people and they carry mattresses and heavy beams and furniture and whatever else 
and that's their job, meaning they deliver it and then they pick up another pack and they bring that pack down right. and seven, seven days a week. And if they can't do that, they're out of, out of a job and right. pretty much in that environment, that means you're going to be hungry. Right. And so, yeah, it's just really, we're really spoiled over here. <laughs> yeah, the resiliency of the human species is quite amazing, I think. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, and that, that brings me actually to the workshop, which is proprioception. Yeah. Why did I get interested in that? Well, about probably 12 years ago or so, um, as I was writing my first ebook, of course, I had to include the concept of balance in it. And uh, as I started delving into the literature, I noticed that there's quite a bit of confusion between what is balance, what is proprioception. And so you see a lot of people claiming things like you do a balance exercise that improves your proprioception. You stand on a BOSU ball or whatever you're doing. And the literature is pretty profoundly clear on that, that they're not the same. Yeah. So uh, proprioception, to uh, simplify it, is a sense and as any sense, it constantly changes, which means every exposure, even in our daily life, that sense gets fed by sensory information. And then because of that, we can see changes. Now, there is a commonality between what is balance and proprioception. So within the literature, they often discuss uh, similar, uh, similar subsystems within balance and proprioception, such as vision such as uh, sensation, mechanoreceptor information, uh, such as uh, vestibular information. So if we really think we can, we can improve proprioception, then we should look into the literature and see if those senses can improve. So can we improve vision, for example, right? Now, I'm not talking about a sniper versus a non-sniper, but Let's say your vision, can I improve you to see better? That's pretty doubtful. Mechanoreceptor uh, systems, now we need to delve deep into the uh, receptors itself, uh, Golgi tendon organ, muscle spindle, uh, uh, Purkinje fibers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so what I've done is uh, myself and uh, Dean Kim, He's a, a young man. Well, at that point, he was a young man with me at Oregon State University. And he, a uh, very brilliant young man. Uh, he's a kinesiotherapist in Canada for a couple of years now. Uh, and him and I have uh, very interesting conversations around motor control, motor learning. And then another topic that we're both very interested in is called the internal model, uh, which you can also call the prediction model. So if we, before we move, we predict what is going to happen before we pick up a, a bar with two five, 45 pound plates. We predict how heavy it's going to be and then actually exert force and effort accordingly. And our brain can be tricked in this. So there's been tons of studies done. For example, if, if you use plates with a weightlifter that are all of the same color and all of the same size, so width is also the same and you don't write down how heavy they are. So one is 10 pounds and the other one is, let's say, 45 pounds. You can actually trick that sensory system by them thinking, oh, this is going to be very heavy, or by them thinking it's very light. Uh, so what we're currently, Dean and I are looking at, is there, is there a way 
to improve this internal model, which I think would be critical uh, in performance. And that's not only for elite athletes, but you know, your grandma needs to perform when she stands on a slippery surface, let's say on an icy patch. Right. Can, can she adapt very quickly without falling and maybe breaking her hip, ending in a hospital and dying? Right. Uh, also, we need to delve into the literature and the concepts around uh, feed forward and feedback perturbations. Because a lot of the balance and so-called proprioceptive exercises I see around me are not using a feedback system. So there is already, you know what the task is and then you prepare for it. While that's not going to help your basketball player, let's say, or soccer player that gets tackled from behind and know what's coming. Can we actually speed up that sensory information? Uh, can uh, Can we improve not only the neural responses to any kind of challenge, but can we speed it up? So can our brain actually interpret information faster? And profoundly, the, the, the research shows that that is not possible. It's a set system. But people do improve uh, with balance exercise. You retest them, for example. So what's, what's really going on? And, and what Dean and I have found are things that are going on is actually motor learning, meaning exposure. Uh, so you get exposed to a perturbation, either feed forward or feed back. And as you get that repeated, you learn. And in reality, within less than five repetitions of that same challenge, you're, you've changed automatically without telling them what to do. You don't need to tell them, raise your core or whatever else. That change happens, uh, happens quite rapidly and automatically. So that brings us now to the concept again of movement variability. Uh, so indeed, you're, you're, you, know, you said if you only train linearly you know, and, and never rotationally in your weight room or whatever else you're doing, you're only going to get good in that direction and that might not help you whatsoever. And that in your sport activities, if they demand a more rotational aspect. So again, it comes back to what I said earlier. It's often these concepts related to fitness that we're now throwing into performance. We're using systems that are completely irrelevant to the athlete or the non-athlete. And that, that gets scary. And I, a lot of my athletes that I see for, for reason of injury or limitation of their performance, that's actually the problem. They either, most of them train too linearly and then they get exposed to something nonlinear and then they're having pain or they're having limitation in their performance levels. So we need to, we need to you know, dig a lot deeper in that. Right. Uh, then around learning, you know, we need to, what I've done and Dean and I have done is look at the literature and what is the most optimal way of learning, you know, multitasking, for example, I see way too many people using exercises that are not multitasking. Uh, and that's not going to help your athlete. They need to be able to do multiple things at the same time. So we've identified uh, several strategies around that. And that's why I generated a, a workshop around. Yeah, that's interesting. So there's, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there as well. So it's uh, it's the, the sensory input that is incredibly important. And that's, like you said, comes from proprioception, which is like moving your joints around. And that comes from what you see and what you hear. Because for the most part, our brain is in this dark cave and has no idea what's going on. 
until that sensory information comes in. And so that's where, you know, I find, um, uh, you know, through a lot of my other modalities, like a lot of people will tend to have neck pain or low back pain because they have an eye dysfunction from a concussion that they received mm-hmm. uh, in whatever it is, because the way that our system works is that our brain thinks our eyes look and then our body goes. Mm-hmm. And so if our, our, if our eyes aren't looking appropriately, then the body has to work harder in order to complete that task. And then if, you know, it becomes, it's like skipping the middleman essentially. Um, and then it's just adding, God, that was really good. That was a really good rant. And I'm trying to like kind of keep up <laughs> to what you were saying. And so, um, especially with like the, the, the joint movement thing. So that's what I look at as proprioception. Like where's your body in space? And so, you know, that's where, uh, uh, functional range conditioning was really pertinent to my understanding because you know there's a there were a lot of CrossFit athletes that had shoulder pain, mm-hmm. but they have shoulder pain because they're only pushing up or pushing forward, and that's it. And so when you start to introduce behind their the posterior shoulder to them, then they're starting to waver and they're starting to hesitate because their brain doesn't know what that is. Mm-hmm. And then so the way I explain it to them is your, your brain has a map of your body. And if there's parts of your body that you don't use, then that part in your brain map starts to get darker. Mm-hmm. And then so once you start to move through that part, that dark part of your body, it's like you're running through the living room and somebody turns the light off. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden your brain is like, oh, shit, I don't know what this is or I don't know how to use it. Yeah. And then that's where the injury comes in. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, like as I was uh, demonstrating to you on the video, that's like the, it's, it's called the swimmer hover. So where you're coming back here and if you're hovering here from here to here and in the mid range and you, you start to hesitate or try to move around or, and you're wondering why you can't get a pull up, it's because your brain doesn't know what that part of your body is. Mm-hmm. And so that's where the movement variability comes in for me is introducing all these different aspects that my body normally doesn't move in because I'm not one of those indigenous peoples that's just, you know, farming or climbing up a mountain or trying to, you know, carry their kid through the jungle or whatever it is. I'm a, I'm a human in America that has to figure out how to give myself as much movement variability as I can. Well, yeah. And even our athletes uh, are are also sedentary for many hours during the week. Uh, I'll never forget a study that was done in um, college, Division I uh, college football playing players. You know, how many hours per day are they actually sitting? Yeah. And, and, and it was actually almost seven and a half hours. Yeah. We often, I think, ignore and think, you know, these athletes, they're moving around so much, why should we worry about that? They're actually sedentary for – almost a whole work day as individuals have an eight hour, eight hour work day. They're almost spending the same amount of time, you know, sitting behind a desk or studying for an exam or whatever else. Uh, And so I've saw a lot of problems with them too. And then what I'd like to add is a lot of people think that proprioception and proprioceptive exercise are just some balance exercises and they get a little bit more advanced than a bosu ball and then et cetera, et cetera. And I think they're missing the point. What they will find in my workshop is that actually uh, 
part of the exercises are actually using heavy loads. But what I use specifically is uniloaded weightlifting. And so what I mean by that is this, and you should try it in your weight room. Instead of you squatting with uh, 45 pounds on each side, let's say, squat with 45 pounds on one side. Yep. Not both sides. Yep. Deadlift, bench press, the same, the same way. Yep. Shift the bar all the way to the side where the load is now further away from your center of pressure. Yep. Okay, so the, the research is profound that if we want to be able to try to improve some of these aspects related to proprioception, although it's doubtful that proprioception can be improved in itself, so it's still not clear on that. Uh, one of the reasons we're not clear on it is there are so many different definitions of what proprioception really is. Right. Position, sense, et cetera, et cetera, are all factors, which I discuss uh, extensively in my workshop. Uh, so using load and actually improving effort is actually one of the, one of the limiting factors. And it, it makes it fun for my stronger individuals during the workshop to get challenged. And they're often surprised, you know, how tough it is to squat or deadlift with a weight only on one side. Yep. The, the other thing, if, if I can sum it up, that, uh, that Dean and I found we need to do to try to improve aspects related to proprioception is uh, involved uh, things like allocation of attentional strategies. So using attention within certain exercise, so focus. Cognitive, associative, and autonomous challenges instead of just predictable uh, exercises actually, uh, you know, uh, affect the uh, things like stretch reflex and, and uh, reflexive responses. Uh, then try to do some specific proprioceptive challenges based on the, the uh, science on, on receptors. So some of these receptors only respond to static loads. On, uh, some of them only respond to uh, acceleration. Uh, some respond only to deceleration. And I was really uh, flattered that uh, during my presentation on proprioception this summer at the NSCA National Conference, uh, on the fourth row was Jimmy Ratcliffe, uh, a fellow uh, student of mine when I was there at the University of Oregon, of course, a, a brilliant uh, strength coach uh, who has revolutionized how we use plyometrics and similar strategies. Uh, and he, you know, he kept nodding his head as I, as I went through my slides. And afterwards, him and I had a great conversation about it, you know, where he, he ag totally agreed on, on, on what I presented that and that he said it was the best presentation of the whole conference. For people like him, we can learn so much. But unfortunately, what I see in the, in the last couple of years is that we, we, we like to see circus acts, as I call it. You know, the new flavor of the week, and it, it, it looks sexy, and thereby we get all hooked up on it. And even professionals at the high, highest level. And that's just saddens me. We're you know, we're almost going away from science. It's like the anti-vaxxer people, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't know if vaccines are bad, they're going to die, they're going to have autism, et cetera. And, you know, the keto diet is much better than whatever. And it just blows me away. And I'm not saying those things are bad, but how in the hell did we get up, come up with that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, why don't we, why do we get away as a, and I would say in the, in the U.S. as a society from scientific evidence?
climate change. You know, people say it's all bullshit. I mean, it's just it just baffles me. We're we're becoming instead of less critical, we're becoming uh, skeptical uh, right. without uh, without having a lot of evidence attached to it. Right. So uh, to touch on the climate change thing, I think a lot of people the biggest problem that they have with it is is that it's an overwhelming problem. So then they just kind of blow. It's easier for them to just blow it off. Just be like, well, that's not a thing. <laughs> no, it's a thing, and it's a big thing. And so. Um, that's just kind of my thoughts on it, just based off of people that I've been talking to that are climate change deniers, is that it's just such a huge and overwhelming problem that it's just easier for them to not pay attention to it. Um, well, I think also they, they often now believe that the science related to climate change is purely based on human intervention. Yeah. You know, and that makes people you know, squeamish, right? They're like, oh, it's my fault, and now you're telling me I can't drive my truck anymore, and whatever. I mean, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, although there is profound evidence that it is because of human intervention, it's not the only factor. Right. Uh, the, the, the planet has gone through phases of cooling and heating and so forth for millions of years. Uh, but it, it's the, the going away from scientific evidence uh, without backing it up with other scientific evidence is becoming more and more of a problem. Right. And, and that's, that's one of the reasons I, I get into certain topics like proprioception is what is it really? Yeah. Um, is balance improving proprioception? Nope. Probably not. Yeah. It's just improving your balance. It's just like anything else you practice. You yeah. practice playing the violin, you're going to get better at playing the violin. It, it doesn't mean you're going to be better at playing a piano yep. when, you, when you play the violin. Right. So I think another problem that we have um, in this uh, in the strength and conditioning and training community is that there's a lot of um, anxiety about trying to get somewhere faster. So so how do I get go from a 500 pound squat to an 800 pound squat in a year? Mm -hmm. You know, and you don't. And so that was one of my favorite parts about uh, interviewing Chris. Chris Duffin is he hosted a powerlifting meet and there was a guy who owned a CrossFit gym for about five years, came up to him and said, Hey, how long have you been lifting? You're pretty strong. And Chris Duffin said, well, I've been lifting for about 25 years. <laughs> and, then, and then the guy said, Oh, five years. That's a long time. And Chris said, no, 25 years. And so people hear what they want to hear. And then they're doing all these Russian and Bulgarian squat programs to try and get ex exponential gains in their strength and all this different stuff where it's what we really need to do is like I said earlier, there's no finish line. We need to work on being better humans indefinitely, which means that we have to have this, this really consistent movement practice. And if you, sometimes you'll get stronger, sometimes you'll, you know, get, better balance, like you said, whatever you happen to be working on, but it's something that you have to work on in, indefinitely. Uh, true, yeah. Um, in a, in a, even in our small world, human evolution on an individual level, it's constantly evolving. Yeah. Uh, and especially if we're responsible to improve somebody's health and or performance, uh, I, we have the obligation to use the most scientific stringent methods 
together with our uh, evaluation of their performances or shortcomings and their goal. And and I think if we would put all those three things together, uh, I think a lot of people will be a lot more successful with their clients and their patients. I agree. And it's a, it's a big, it's a huge responsibility that we have because we're literally changing their biology. And so we have to respect that responsibility. And I think there's a, there's a big part of it. And, you know, like I said, I just coming from the CrossFit space where there's a lot of people that like the CrossFit games is what they see on TV and that's what they want, but they're the likelihood that they're going to get there is very low. And so, you know, like you with baseball, if somebody like me came up to you when I was 22 years old and being like, Hey, I want to be a professional baseball player. Well, how long have you been playing baseball? I've never played baseball before, but I saw it on TV and that's what I want to do professionally. You have to, you have the responsibility as a coach to be like, Hey bro, you're probably not going to be a professional baseball player, you know, unless you're, you're like this savant, which is great, but you know, same with like football or, or that's what we're constantly comparing ourselves to like these, the, you know, these Chinese Olympic weightlifters, they're phenomenal. And so if you haven't been weightlifting since you were a child, you're probably not going to get there. And so don't have anxiety about how much they're lifting. Just if you enjoy snatching and cleaning, jerking, then do that thing. But then there's also these other, these other, um, variations in your movement that you need to add into so you don't get injured when you know you get that weight overhead and it falls to the side because you're not training in that frontal plane of motion so just be be aware of how just the in the just the responsibility that we have as a trainer you need to be aware of that and then um, being realistic with the goals of the athlete and making sure that they're going down a way that's safe and, and will provide the most improvement for them over time. Because I think that that's really important. Like, like Chris Duffin said, 25 years, that's a long time. That's a lot longer than five, which is what that guy heard. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. so, but I mean, the same goes with, uh, you know, success or, you know, cause I, you know, listening to your story, you've been working incessantly on what you consider to be successful and you're, you know, expanding your program and expanding your knowledge and it's constant effort over a long period of time and you still are forming new goals. And then once you accomplish those goals then you're successful at that goal, but then that's going to reveal new ones. And so, you know, it's a, it's a, it should be a never ending process and there shouldn't be, um, an ultimate end goal. There should just be the next step, like you were saying earlier. Yeah, that's that's my message to young professionals or or young individuals that are trying to figure out what to do with their life is um, identify your passion. Doesn't matter what it is. Number one, number two, get as good at it as you can, and then money will come and yeah. opportunities will come. Yeah, uh, money's know. a money's yeah. a fortunate byproduct. Yeah, it's it, it's that uh, it's that simple. Plus, I think the current generation should be should be told that even if they focus on one profession now, uh, let's say you want to be a whatever a pilot. Yeah. Um, 
within their time frame of their life, they're going to get replaced by a robot. Yep. And so you can't just focus on one thing. You, you always need to look at the future, uh, stick with your passion, follow that first. And then you're going to find other passions within that pathway of your life. And, uh, that's what I call your plan B. Right. Well, what's next. Right. If, yep. Uh, but again, follow passion and then get as good as it as you can. And how do you get as good as you can? You identify those that are already there. Yep. They already have your job. What, yeah. are they, what are they reading? Especially now with social media, you can find out, you know, on most head strength coaches and let's say major league baseball, what their passions are, what do they read? What are their hobbies, etc. cetera? Uh, it, it's not that hard. Yeah. Uh, the, but now you've got to put in the effort and then sooner or later, somebody's going to realize you have some talent and you have some uh, major commitment and, uh, and you're passionate about what you do and then opportunities will come. Right. And so that's uh, one of the reasons why I started the podcast is just so, because there's questions that I have and there's voices that need to be heard. And so you just ask people, Hey, can you be on my podcast? And most of them say yes. And some of them say no. But regardless, it's information and it's a learning opportunity for everybody. You know, it's like that. That's why I love, you know, whatever I get into, there's, there's a podcast for anything. Like if you want to start to learn about strawberry jam, there's podcasts about it, you know, and there's, there's people that are passionate about it too. And so, you know, there's all these people that are talking about how social media is evil and it's all super negative. And I just keep asking them, what are you paying attention to? because I'm paying attention to the leaders of my industry and I'm following what they're following and I'm doing what they're doing and I'm reading what they're reading and that's, and I'm listening to what they're listening to because mm-hmm. so, everybody's like, this book is amazing. I'm like, cool. It's on the list. And my Amazon wish list is just, it's hundreds of books deep. And I still, <laughs> you know, sometimes I buy a book just because I feel like I'm getting behind and then I'm just like, Ugh, then I get anxiety. Shit, I got to finish this one first. And you know, it's, there's, we live in this age of information and if you use it appropriately, then you can get where you need to go. And a lot faster than, you know, like when you started or when my dad started, there's a, there's a, there's just the ease in which you can get places is so much better. Yeah. It's just a push of a button away now. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. Right on. So speaking of reading, what are you reading right now? Um, well, actually what I've realized in the last couple of years, I'm a terrible self promoter. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, my dad, he's still alive. He's about 86 now. He's an artist and he's a humble man and basically has, you know, given that to both of his sons to be humble and, and so forth. So now that my job is actually, you know, generating, dollars through my workshops and lectures and so forth. I still got to pay my bills. Uh, I've realized for a while, I should admit, uh, that I have shortcomings in, in uh, identifying how to use, you know, podcasts, <laughs> how to uh, get involved in, uh, you know, promoting my business on Facebook, Instagram, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. So, I bought a couple of books on learning. Again, learning never stops uh, to do a better job at that. And al- although I still suck at it, Seb will say that, 
uh, I'm slowly but surely putting in more and more effort to do a better job at that. Uh, so that's that's what I've been focusing on in in, in the last well, I would say year or so. I don't have a book laying around here, otherwise I'd show you a title. But uh, when I read, also I, I I often get into several topics at the same time, mm. uh, depending on what kind of mood I'm in uh, before I go to bed. Yeah. Uh, so I can't give you an exact title, but most of it is around, you know, how how can you be better at, at promoting your business or how, how can you be better at promoting the services that you provide? Right. So, uh, I, one of the guys that I listen to a lot right now is the Dr. Jordan Peterson. And he said just that same thing almost where he said, if there's something that you're doing, you should probably put forth some effort to be better at it. And so there's a myriad of ways that you can be better at what you're doing. And so you can always learn something to boost your business. You can always, uh, do something to boost your social media presence. You can always, you know, like I keep telling people, the people that are the leaders of pain science are still learning about pain. Oh yeah. So there's always something to learn. And, you know, there's a lot of times where, you know, you think you have all this information dialed in and then those people present something new that just kind of shatters your foundation of your understanding of how the human body works or, or how business works or whatever it is. And so, you know, just keep seeking those top performers and figure out what they're doing and they'll give you the information that you need. Um, you know, so coming out of massage school, which is, is like the most remedial of educations just to get you out there. You know, when I learned the, uh, the joint by joint approach, for example, I was just blown away. Like, what do you mean that knee pain isn't from knee? Like it comes from the ankle or the hip. What are you talking about? Like it took me, a while to kind of wrap my head around that and start to look at different parts of the body and, and figure out that everything's the same thing. You know, like if there's inflammation there, it's probably coming from somewhere else and that's probably what the cause of the pain is. Or, you know, once I started to learn about, um, you know, neurological muscle testing and figuring out where those dysfunctions are and how those cause pain. And, you know, it could be, it could be anything. So that made me, relate to my car mechanic a lot more when I'd call him and tell him, Hey, when I'm driving down the highway at 50 miles an hour, my car starts to sputter, but then it doesn't. When I get to 60, what's that about? And he's like, I don't know, bring your car in so I can look at it. So when people call me back, like, why does my back hurt? I'm like it could be anything. I have no idea. And so, you know, just constantly expanding your understanding of whatever it is, you know, like read Neil deGrasse, Neil deGrasse Tyson's book about, astrophysics because it'll blow your mind at how small you are and you know what we're trying to do is leave a legacy and and create better humans and so that's a pretty that's a pretty noble goal and i think that we're doing a good job of that well we're trying so yeah october 5 6 um i'll be in san diego for those individuals that are interested in that just go to kineticintegrations.com okay I'm going to see a, a link on there that says workshops. That's where you can register. Uh, the majority of individuals that attend uh, the San Diego location are uh, uh, chiropractors, also strength coaches. So uh, they're, they're great followers of my work. Uh, then the weekend after, I'll be in New York City, first time actually, downtown New York City. It's also a chiropractic group. Uh, 
They're called uh, Empire Sports and Spine. Uh, that's going to be the uh, upper extremity, the upper quarter of uh, my KI methodology. Uh, I fly straight the next day to China for uh, three and a half weeks. Got several workshops there and several locations. Come back home two weeks later, I'll be in Tokyo. Uh, and then uh, pretty much the end of November and majority of December, I'll be back in China uh, to finish up the school year of my uh, private uh, academy. Uh, that uh, focus will be on performance and motor learning and motor control and uh, related topics to that. Right on. And uh, where else can people find you on Instagram, Facebook? Uh, like I said, I'm building that up, but uh, Facebook is going to be either my personal Facebook page, Guido Van Rijsegem, or my uh, professional Facebook page, which is going to be Kinetic Integrations. I tend to post mostly professional work on the Kinetic Integrations Facebook page, although I have a lot more followers uh, personally. Uh, Instagram, yeah, just you know, use my name. Uh, it's in there. I've actually posted my uh, first article on there. I had quite a bit of response and people from Germany contacting me to come to Germany and do a workshop there. Nice. Uh, so uh, I was a little surprised about that. So. Actually, this Instagram stuff is working. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right on. Well, it's I appreciate you. audience. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time. This is a really fun conversation. I really enjoyed it. Yes, definitely enjoyed it. Um, hopefully, one of these days we can meet. Where are, you, where are you located now? So right now I'm in Flagstaff, Arizona, and so it's a really small town in northern Arizona. So, you know, it's pretty. Um, I really have to travel to get a lot of my education. So, you know, hopefully uh, sometime next year, Ben will host you again and I'll be out there for that one. That would be awesome. All right, my friend. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Okay.